The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia, with special guest, pastor, and teacher, Jim Kerwin. This is Jim Kerwin, and you're listening to Pilgrim's Progress, a ministry of National Prayer Chapel. We're in day three of our subject, What's the Context? As we look at how to read and interpret and preach and teach the scriptures with an eye to the the context of the text and how the context of history and culture and the author's purpose and several other factors fit into opening up the scriptures for us. Now, looking forward to the final exam on Friday. Remember, there are two questions, two, two things you have to know. Number one, when you come to the text, what's the question that you ask every single time, no matter what you're reading? And the answer is, what's the context? And the second thing is to remember that the greatest context is the context of the entire scripture, the whole counsel of God. And you can only know the whole counsel of God if you read the whole counsel of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask you to, if you've been counting the cost and say, yes, I haven't been doing that or I stopped doing that and I need to continue doing that. On Friday, we're going to give you a a toll-free number to call, and I'd just like you to to call, talk to the producer, and say, hi, my name is, and give your first name, and I want to start reading the scriptures. I'm making the commitment. I want to give this testimony publicly. If, perchance, you are listening to this after the live broadcast and you can't do that, you can go to the, the link on the, on the webpage, read through the show notes, and down at the bottom you can leave... Uh, a comment, a remark, and just say, I've started doing this, I've made the commitment. Now, I don't want to exclude those of you who are already reading through the scriptures. I would love to know that there are people of like mind and like heart out there, and I know that there are, but I mean, I'd like to meet you. So today, if you are in the regular habit of reading through the scriptures annually, then I'd like you to give our producer a call. His name's Kevin you can reach him at 877-534-0780. You're not going to go on the air. And all I ask is that you give your first name and say, yes, I'm reading through the scriptures annually. And if you remember, you can say, I've been doing it for X number of years, or I've been doing it since 1988 or 2017. I'm sorry, 2017 or whatever you've been doing. And That'll just give us a feel for how many people there are that are listening, that are active, uh, involved, and hungry Bible readers. You know, it's not like anybody's asking you to do some terrible thing. Those in the know, those who have been doing it for a while, those who have established the discipline, find the blessing of God, and they can say, like the Scripture says, I words were found, and I did eat them. And they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Now, um, before we get into the the subject, and remember we're right in the middle of looking at 
wives submit and husbands love, but in context, which is going to put an entirely new light on that. Just a couple of of housekeeping things. Some questions have come my way, so I want to answer them briefly. Um, First one is, are you available to speak at church retreats and conferences? Yes, as long as I don't have something else scheduled. And um, so you can just write to me at jim at finestoftheweek.org if that's an interest. And here's a good one. I don't know why I didn't even think about this to, to bring it up. Why is your ministry called Finest of the Wheat? Because that's our ministry there in Chesapeake, and the website is finestoftheweat.org. Or you can get there from .com or .net. They'll all go to the same place. Um, why is it called Finest of the Wheat? Because there's two passages in the book of Psalms that really spoke to us when it came to training God's leaders and feeding God's people from the word. In Psalm 81, it says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And again, Psalm 147, just before the Psalms close, the scripture says, he, meaning the Lord, satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. And I hope during our week together that you're getting a little taste of being fed on the finest of the wheat. And let's see, one more thing. Uh, Special love and uh, encouragement goes out from me to Pastor Dan. May the Lord bless you in your new undertaking. And saludos a hermana Silvia de la Museo de la Biblia y mi amigo y colaborador Antonio Rodriguez. Uh, mi colaborador in Honduras. And no, we haven't gone bilingual, but here's what I found that as I, as I minister in Latin America, if you want to pe- speak to people's hearts, you have to speak to them in their heart language. And so for my new uh, acquaintance, my sister and a brother whom I've known for a while, I want to speak to them in their heart language. And what I'm hoping is that as you become a Bible reader, that The Bible will become your heart language in whatever language you read it, that when the Lord speaks to you, often it will be through Scripture, not just while you're reading, but from what you've stored in your heart. He will draw things out to give you guidance, to give you encouragement, even to give the occasional rebuke uh, and, and correction. That's what the Scripture's there for. All right, let's get on into our subject Let me just back up and say that we've been talking about how seeing a verse or a passage in its context can radically change our understanding or expand it beyond some narrow legalistic scope. So we looked at Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 yesterday, where we get the passage, wives submit and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Oh, oh, one more thing, almost forgot. Uh, One of the questions was, can I get a copy of the notes from this week's teaching? And the answer is, yes, you can. Um, I put a link in yesterday's show notes, and they will be in the show notes for today, Thursday, and Friday. So you can link through. It's a PDF. There are three of my PowerPoint slides per sheet. And uh, the other half of the page vertically will allow you to write notes by each of the uh, slides. I haven't gone through them quite in order, but we will have covered 
most of them, I think, by the end of the week. We might not get to the bonus material at the end. I had to add the bonus material when I was teaching in Iowa two months ago at the Iowa Holiness Association camp meeting where I was the Bible teacher. Um, (laughs) We just went through it. They were hungry. They just kept drawing out more. And a word of apology. Up until Iowa, I've never taught this material in English in the United States. I've I've been teaching it for 10 years in Latin America. So I had to back translate it from from my Spanish PowerPoints. And I may have missed a few words because once you're working in a language for a while, you look at it and you say, your your brain doesn't register that it's the wrong language. I think I got them all, but if you find an occasional word, sorry, uh, that's what the that's what the cause is. Um, it's, in fact, it's happening because as I'm reading through the Bible in English, I'm also reading through uh, in different places in Spanish in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and a lot of times when something comes to mind that I've read recently, I can't remember which Bible it's been in, which language it's been in, because it all sort of homogenizes. Anyway, back to husbands and wives. Um, you know how this goes, and, well, my wife won't submit to me, and my husband doesn't love me, and uh, I know that there are, are tragedies out there, but I also know there's a lot of stubborn people. But you know what? This isn't a matter of stubborn people This is a matter of not seeing the context. Now, I asked you to do some homework on this, and I hope some of you did, because it will be very, very beneficial. We tried to insert ourselves into Paul's thinking and and logic up in verse 18 of chapter 5, where he says, be being filled with the Spirit. None of the rest of this works unless you are filled, and you keep being filled with the Spirit. Then he says, uh, speaking to yourselves, in so- and meaning not just to yourself, but to each other, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for everything, and so forth, verse 20. And then he says in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then from that point, Paul lays out six different examples of mutual submission. You say, I don't see six. If you don't see six, the reason is because you didn't skip over the chapter heading. Because remember, Paul did not write in chapters. He may have written in segments of thought, like we were looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, where he deals with a particular issue about spiritual gifts and their function and the the love motive out of which they need to operate. But Paul didn't write Ephesians chapter 6. So what you have is six different examples of mutual submission that come out of being filled with the Spirit. Wives submit to husbands, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Husbands Submit to wives. You say, oh, but it says husbands love your wives. It doesn't say submit to wives. Let me tell you, these are six different points under submitting to one another. You know what? If you really love someone, you're going to submit to many of their desires and requests just because you love them and you want to see them blessed. Um, 
I, I'm no shining example of a husband, but I guess I must be a keeper. My wife's kept me around for 46 and a half years, and we've got to, you know, we'll, we'll think about renewing our contract there after uh, our 60th anniversary if the Lord gets us that far. Um, but that's a, a, you get to the end of this thing that he talks about, be like Jesus. Well, who's the most submissive person I know? Curiously, ironically, it's the Lord Jesus willingly submitted to the Father, willingly serving the bride, his wife, and boy, between husbands and wives submit to husbands and husbands love your wives, submit to your wives. I tell you, the, the greater challenge to me as a husband anyhow is to be Christ-like to my wife. And you know what? I submit to my wife in a lot of things because she, as, as Peter says, is a, an heir together in, in, in the grace of life. She's my, um, in, in Spanish, when I teach through the, the second part of hermeneutics, which is the first part of Woman in the Kingdom of God, the, the idea is, you're my otro yo. You're, you're the other me. You're the other part of me. You're the rib that got taken out of me. Uh, or, or as we say in Espanol, mi amada costilla, my, my beloved rib. But then we get done with that, and here's another example. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Mutual submission. You have a hard time submitting to your parents, teenagers? Okay, there's no parent that's perfect, so if you're going to wait around for that, it's not going to happen. But you can be being filled with the Spirit. God will set your heart right and give you the most harmonious relation possible with your parents. Then, verse, chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, essentially he says, fathers submit to your children. Now, I'm not saying don't be a father, don't be an authority figure. I'm just saying... He Look at what he says there. And then in verses 5 through 9, slaves or employees submit to your owners or your bosses. And bosses, masters, you need to serve your employees and your slaves. So submitting to one another because you're filled with the Spirit and all of these six examples are not the only ones, but they're the only ones that Paul gives. They are what... God gives us as examples of mutual submission. Now, I can guarantee you from 50 years of Christian experience and about 49 and a half years of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, that all of this only works well if you are filled with the Spirit. And let me give you an example. You know, one of the things that you find as you read through Scripture over and over again is you see many things. But sometimes what you don't see as you read and reread through the scriptures is just as amazing as what you do see. Um, I'll give you an example. For instance, if you read through the scriptures, I mean really read, you will discover that there is never a time when an angel is described as having wings. I'm sorry, you can... You can shoot me down, but get your concordance out first and check it out, all those passages... Cherubim, yes. Seraphim, yes. In fact, they have multiple sets. Angels, they're never described as having wings. That's a tradition that comes to us from the Dark Ages. It's, it's, we don't see it. Um, but 
an example in, oh, and then there's another one too. You will never find the, the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Not once. In fact, that word Antichrist, Antichristos, only appears five times in the New Testament. And it's never, it's only by one writer, and it's never in a prophetic context. And I'll let you do your homework in your Strong's Concordance to find out where that is. But just think about that. All the teaching you've heard about Antichrist in the, in the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, and the word never appears there. You say, well, we interpret this and that. Okay, that's fine. You interpret it however you want. But the word doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. Now, back to the subject of being filled with the Spirit. Here's the thing that I noticed once in reading through the book of Acts, having read through the New Testament, I don't know how many times at that point. You know, all through the Gospels, right up until and including the Last Supper, you have this argument going on about who's going to be the greatest and people coming to Jesus and saying, can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? In fact, two of the boys, John and James, actually sent uh, their mother to, to ask Jesus. And if you look at some of the relationships, I'm almost certain that their mother is Salome, and Salome is a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So you've got the aunt coming and asking for, hey, you know, you need to do something special here for your cousins. That's, that's what's going on. So anyway, all of those stories, all embarrassing, all the more embarrassing because all of us have, at one point or another, before God got a hold of us, wanted to have the upper seat, the best place to be the most important. And so... We commiserate, we understand, we don't look down our noses too much because you think either, God, that's still in my heart or that used to be in my heart before you took it away. And then when you get to the book of Acts, that never happens again. You never find people vying for position. In fact, they they take a Johnny-come-lately, Jesus' half-brother, James, and they, they put him in charge of the very large church in Jerusalem. What? he's not worthy. You know, he he didn't even believe in Jesus before he died and, and before Jesus was raised from the dead. And and uh, finally, he appeared to James, uh, we, we find out in one place. So, you know, he, he didn't bear the heat and burden of the day. Why make it? It's okay. They didn't care. He was the man best qualified. He was the man that the Holy Spirit pointed out. They were happy to give him that responsibility because they, as apostles, as sent out ones, that's what that word apostle means, one who is sent out, not one who sits on top of a spiritual bureaucracy and tells other people what to do and puts apostle on his business card. So they were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And this thing about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be at Jesus' right hand, left hand, that never came up again. So this matter, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submit, children obey. All of that has to be energized by what Paul is saying in context. He has to be energized by be being filled with the Spirit so that you're full of worship, full of mutual edification, giving thanks to God, and so readily able to give yourself to a submission to, to anybody who needs to be served. So are you seeing this differently now? Are you seeing 
the this wife submit husband's love in the way Paul's talking about it. Paul's not laying down some some you know me Tarzan you doormat rule. I, too often that's what that's what this comes across. When the scripture says me Tarzan you doormat. Uh uh-uh, uh no. Be being filled with the Spirit so that you can worship and mutually edify and submit to each other. And here are some practical ways, excuse me, practical ways that you can do that. So, context. Bless me. What do they teach them in these schools? Now, that's within a chapter. Let me take a look at the uh, what I call the bugbear of Romans chapter 7. Bugbear is a a word that used to be a really useful one in English. I'm not certain how many people know what it means. Um, and I'm going to send you to the dictionary and find out if you don't know. But Romans 7 is the escape clause of those who believe they can't be freed from the sin nature and they have to deal with an evil heart of unbelief their whole life. Um, because they quote these verses that say, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, and the thing that I want to do, I can, and the thing that I do want to, I mean, the thing I don't want to do, I do, the thing I, I do want to do, I can't, oh, woe is me, and so forth. And so this is their proof that God it, is it going to deliver them from the sin nature, and they can't get a pure heart. Um, so what is el contexto? What is the context I was teaching, I teach every year down in Guatemala. It's one of my, it's one of the highlights of my, of my year, every year, because these fellows have grown, these, these leaders, and I say fellows, but there's also sisters there, um, pastoras, and um, just anybody who wants to come. And for several, I think for two years, I taught on, holiness and sanctification. And then these last two years, we did a deep, deep dive, a wonderful dive into the book of Hebrews. It took us two, basically three-day sessions over over two years to get to the bottom of Hebrews and its wonderful message of holiness and rest and deliverance from the sin nature and being in the presence of God in the holy, uh, the holy of holies. And one brother, I'm going to call him uh, Hermano Pastor Gruñedor, and I won't bother to explain what that means, but if you know Spanish, you know. He's just sort of the curmudgeon of the group, and, you know, my mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the scriptures, you know. So we were deep into this in, in Hebrews last year, when we were doing the first session back in May of 2017. And he said... Well, what about Romans 7? <laughs> and I was ready for him because I knew what was going to come. Um, you know, after all the teaching they'd had for several years, he was just bound and determined that he could continue on in his, in his grumpiness and that his, certain things in his lifestyle were, were justified. And so um, I said to him, Hermano, Pablo no escribió Romanos capítulo 7. Paul didn't write Romans chapter 7. And his eyes got big as saucers. You know, and you could think, you could see the, the, the gears were turning and he's, you know, thinking about what kind of heretic to call me. And some of the other brothers were, were looking at me a little strange. And then a few of them, I could see a glimmer in their eyes. And I said, and, and Paul didn't write Romans chapter 6. And 
Paul didn't write Romans chapter 8. He didn't write chapter 5 or chapter 4. What am I saying? Paul didn't write in chapters. So how dare you take Romans 7 out of this wonderful context? You know, even if we just limited it to the context of 6, 7, and 8, what we call chapters 6, 7, 8, what's he establishing in chapter 6? By by this this thing that God does in me, I'm, I'm baptized into Jesus Christ. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in, in Christ Jesus. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And then chapter 8, the whole thing is, is a kind of rejoicing and the fruit and the, and the results of being having been set free from sin and being alive in the Spirit. So why on earth... Do we take chapter 7 out of there? Well, because it's convenient, because we've had that sort of preconception put on us all this time. And so that when we look at it, that's what we see. But Paul is basically coming into a, um, a, th- a theoretical argument. He says, now, you know, we're, we're dead to sin, we're alive in Christ Jesus, but what's it like to not be like that, to always be dealing with the law, not be in the Spirit? Oh, here we are back to being filled with the Spirit, like in Ephesians. One of the things you'll find with Paul is he has some consistent themes through his epistles. It's the He talks about the outworking of the law to reveal sin inside and the resulting internal war that's, that goes on in somebody who hasn't had the matter dealt with. The flow of Romans 1 through 8 is a, just showing the state of mankind and the powerful, liberating work of Jesus Christ ultimately living in us and filling us with the Holy Spirit, giving us life in Christ Jesus. So that Romans 7 seems out of step, but Paul's just doing a contrast. He's saying, here's what it's like to be outside of that. So when you when you come to that again, as you read through Romans 1 through 8, you know, you have to get to the end of chapter 7 and say, now, is this what Paul's after? And if you look at it in the context of 6 and 8, 5, 6 and 8, you'll say, no, this isn't the, Paul, the purpose Paul's trying to make. This is the contrast to the point that Paul's trying to make. You get to the end of chapter 7 where he says, O wretched man that I am, and if you stop there, the question you ought to ask is, oh, the thing, your thing you should say is, oh, wretched interpreter that I am, if you stop there, because you're not seeing it in context. It, it's, it's not against, it's not contrary to what he said in 5 and 6 and 8. It's just a, well, I mean, it is in contrast, but it's, it's not against what he's saying. It's just saying, here's what it's like to not have this thing that Jesus gives us. All right, we're going to march right on to the gates of Hades. This is a favorite passage. It's a favorite passage because supposedly it's a spiritual warfare verse. And while there are many wonderful verses about spiritual warfare, Matthew 16:18, which is where I want you to turn now. Matthew 16:18 is not one of them. In fact, what we'll see, the way we interpret this Part of it comes from a bad translation. Part of it comes from uh, traditions, superstitions that come down to us from the dark ages of Christianity. 
Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Matthew sixteen eighteen. I've just taken the last part of the verse. Now, first up, if you learn this in the King James, and all honor to the, the King James translator, what a, an amazing job they did. Not a perfect job. I'm not one of those, you know, King James only thing, and it's the only blessed translation, and blah, blah, blah none of which has much in the way of any kind of underpinning. And in any event, even if it had been true in 1600, I'm sorry, in 400 years, a lot of the English meanings have changed. You know, you read, especially in oh Mark, where you come across the phrase in King James, by and by such and such happened, by and by such and such happened. Well, for us, by and by is, eh, you know, when it got around to it, well, by and by used to mean immediately, right away, instantly, and that's the word in the Greek, it's essentially euthus. It's a word we get enthusiasm from. You'll see that a lot in the Gospel of Mark because it's really the Gospel of Peter as recorded by Mark, although Mark has a special little story about himself in the garden uh, if you are, are paying attention. And uh, so that's Peter's personality. Immediately, right away, dive in, do this. So there's a place where now by and by just it, it loses some of the meaning i can't think of a perfect translation usually in a in a two-year period when i read through the the old testament twice the the new testament well no i'm sorry in two years it's four times and then eight times in the new testament one of those times through in two years will be all the way through the the king james another time will be through the new american standard and then various other translations I stay away from paraphrases because they don't do much for me. They just gloss over too much in the hopes of making the Bible a bit more palatable, compatible, um, less technical. You know, that scares some people, that they're not going to understand that the culture's different and all the rest of that. If you've ever gone to live in another culture for a bit, and I'm betting some of you have in terms of school and so forth, I did it several times uh, in studying Spanish. I did immersion for, I've probably done it for seven or eight weeks all told in the city of Antigua, Guatemala. And um, the first day (laughs) I got lost going back to the house where I was going to be staying. And with what little Spanish I had, I had to ask around, get directions. I found out that at least in that town, neither the military who were there, at least the ones I talked to, or the police, none of them could read a map. I even had a map that showed where I lived, but a lot of the streets aren't clearly marked either on the map or on the street, and these fellows couldn't read a map. Uh, The Lord did get me back home, but I had to dive into the culture, and rather than be terrified of it, I just thought, okay, I need to learn the language. I need to learn how things are done here. I need to learn new table manners. I need to learn all of these things. And if you're coming to the scripture, come at it with the same sense of adventure. Hey, I don't understand everything that's going on, but but I want to learn. I need to find out where things are. You move to a new town, where's the bank? Where's the grocery store? Where's the best place to get pizza? Where are all these places? You don't know. You ask around, you drive around, you note where the laundromat is, you figure out where you can buy your appliances you adjust to a new location. Same thing for those of you who are going to be diving into the scriptures. Just go in it with a 
a spirit of adventure. No, you don't know everything. And yes, it will take you time to get adjusted and get moved in, so to speak, and feel like you you know the place and have a, a working familiarity. That's wonderful. Just be open to what God wants to teach you. Anyway, the the standard interpretation of Matthew sixteen eighteen is uh, the... Jesus says that we'll be victorious over the devil and the kingdom of darkness. Now, I happen to believe that's true, that Jesus does say that we'll be victorious over the devil and the kingdom of darkness. It's just that he didn't say it here in Matthew sixteen eighteen. This interpretation is based on an unfortunate King James translation of a single word in the verse. Um, it's a careless well, I can say that 400 years later, who knows? Seems to be a careful, a careless translation of the Greek. So a problem with the linguistic context. Loose theology uh, based on presupposition, superstition, and what we call eisegesis. I'm trying to spare you big words, but exegesis is bringing out of the scriptures what's already there. That's sort of one of the ways that we express doing context and and doing hermeneutics. Eisegesis comes from that basically the same root word with a new prefix, which means into. Eisegesis is me taking my presuppositions, my already formulated doctrines, and putting them on the scripture and say, oh, see, there it is, when there it isn't. So let's look at the linguistic context, as we have to establish this first. What it says is, and this is how I read it at the beginning, the gates of Hades. What it says in the King James is the gates of hell. Hades and hell are not the same place. And so if that verse gets mistranslated, and even with people with newer translations where it's properly translated, they're still under this this thinking that, okay, this I know it says Hades, but it's hell, or they're not clear what the difference is. In Hebrew, Gehenom becomes, in Greek, Gehenna, or Gehenna in Greek. It's the place of fiery punishment after the judgment. Um, that's kind of the, the final state. If you're doing eschatology, personal eschatology, that's where sinners and the wicked and the devil wind up. Then, in there's another word. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. And in Greek, it's Hades, and that's the place of the departed dead. That's where people go, or, or in the case of Christians, used to go when they died, when they were awaiting judgment. Now, that was the place that everybody went prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, just so we're clear, we're not talking about the place of fiery judgment. And you say, wait a minute, Jesus told a story of uh, it related a story about Hades. Uh, remember the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus is in torment. All right, I'm not saying that there isn't suffering necessarily in in uh, Hades. I'm just saying that it's not the place of final judgment. Now, think about one of the verbs there. It's well translated, prevail. The gates of Hades won't prevail against them. Well, how does a how does a gate? How does a door? Uh, prevail against you. What does he mean when he says the gates of Hades won't prevail? You notice he doesn't say the demons of hell. He doesn't say the devil himself. He says the gates. Well, 
because Hades was the place, or Sheol, if you're an Old Testament saint, was the the place that you went to await God's liberation. For instance, Genesis uh, 37 35, um, Jacob says, I will go down to, to Sheol in, in grief. That's when he f- f- believes that Joseph has died. Um, and you could you could follow that through if you do a word study. Then Jesus in Revelation, jumping ahead to the end, he says something very significant. He says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. What does he mean, please? And Paul, who comes into Christ after the resurrection in Philippians 1.23, he says, hmm, I don't know whether to stay or whether to go. I don't know whether to die or stay here to help with you, help you. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. In other words, he's not even anticipating uh, a trip to Hades. He's anticipating going right into the presence of the Lord. Our view of the text, especially this text, is, is influenced by our cultural heritage. Our idea of hell is influenced by superstitions going back to the Dark Ages. For instance, here's a superstition, not a truth. Hell is the home or the headquarters of the devil. Scriptures don't teach that. Scriptures don't even hint at that. Sinners go directly to hell. Well, if that's the case, what's the point of there being a final judgment? No, sinners go to Hades. And in hell, demons are employed in tormenting souls. I mean, how many cartoons do you see in a given month in your in the comic section of your paper where devils are pitchforking some, I don't know, some, uh, I guess in D.C. it would be politicians, but there's other corporate fat cats and, you know, leaders of wickedness in the world. But none of that goes on. None of that is true. All of that is superstition. None of it has a basis in the Bible. In fact, here's the reality. The reality is, my Bible says that hell is the last place where Satan wants to go. And he also tells me that it's the last place he's going to go. Read the last couple of chapters of Revelation if you want to sneak a, a, a peek ahead at what goes on. What is Jesus saying in Matthew sixteen eighteen? if he's not saying, well, the de- devil and his demons won't prevail against you? He's saying the gates of hell won't prevail against the church because all those who die in Christ Jesus go straight into the presence of Jesus. How does a gate prevail against you? How does a door prevail? Well, it either keeps you out or it keeps you in. When uh, I go out to take out the trash or uh, go someplace in my car, I make certain that the door is locked and that I have my key because I want the door to prevail against intruders. That's why we lock them from the inside at night. We don't want people coming into our house uninvited, especially people that would come in in the middle of the night. They would be especially unwelcome. How does a a door prevail against us? Well, we hope that if somebody is imprisoned for a crime and we lock them up, that the door will prevail against them, especially a violent criminal, and keep them within, keep us safe. So the door can prevail, a gate can prevail by keeping you in or keeping somebody out. So how do the gates of Hades not prevail against us? Ah, that's because of what Jesus did. That's what he says. 
I will build my church. How's he going to do that? He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So everyone who follows Jesus, everyone who's obedient to him, who dies in the faith, lo and behold, they get a pass. They get to bypass Hades. The gates of hell, the gates, I'm sorry, I almost blew it there. The gates of Hades don't prevail against them because it can't shut that person in. Those gates can't shut them in. Everybody else is still shut in until the time of the judgment. But those who die in Christ Jesus are like Paul. I go to be with the Lord, which is far better. Do you see the difference it makes? Jesus isn't talking about uh, spiritual warfare. Oh, we could, but I don't have the time. Uh, We could do this a lot differently if I sort of had an an undetermined number of days to cover some of these subjects. So I want to stay on course. But right after that, Jesus says something um, that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. That's how most translations do it. Get a better translation because that's not what the sense of the Greek is. The sense of the Greek there is whatever you bind on earth must have already been bound in heaven. You see, it's a matter of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not I tell heaven what's going to happen. Heaven tells me what's going to happen. Another thought about that too is we pray until we know we have the answer, until the thing is bound or loosed in heaven. And then we can bind and loose on earth, not just by our words, but because of what's happened. I shared something else, and we're going to go into historical context now, history and context, because this is uh, really interesting. Although if you're like... um, well, there was a brother who was listening to me when I got onto this next subject about the arrest of Jesus and the um, the, the guards at his tomb. <laughs> and he came to me after that session. And he said, "You have just destroyed all my flannel graph theology." And if you're old enough to know what a flannel graph is, God bless you. Um, and the other people don't know what they've missed. That's all I have to say. Just a, a quick, oh, here's another question. All right. Um, I'm not quite, okay, I see. How, how is finest of the wheat organized? This isn't anything to do with the teaching. Uh, I'm, I'm not certain. I'm, I'm thinking I know what the question is, uh, what, the, what the purpose is behind it. We are a, a, a 501c3 nonprofit or a church, actually a, a house church, And we have a a specific focus on um, just teaching, especially teaching pastors, leaders, uh, up-and-coming hungry people who are going to be used by God in mainly in developing countries. But we also are growing in our burden to be able to teach people in North America, too. I assume that's what the the question is. I'm sorry. Um, And if you're interested in giving to that next Peru trip, if that's what the thing behind the question is there are links on the uh, on the show notes that will help you on national uh, um, sorry I shouldn't have even responded to that I should just stay focused here generally what we think when we think of the arrest of Jesus Roman soldiers arrested Jesus in the garden 
and Roman soldiers guarded his tomb. And the funny thing is, neither of those things are true. Now, did Roman soldiers take him into custody later, beat him, crucify him, and take down his body? Yes, all of that's true. That's sort of the inside of the sandwich. But the outside, the arrest, and the guarding of the tomb was not done by Roman soldiers. Well, then, who did it? And why is it important to know that? Well, uh, you may have heard of a Jewish historian from the first century by the name of Flavius Josephus. He tells us about a group, and John tells us about a group, that is the Apostle John and the Apostle Luke. They all tell us about a group called the Jewish Temple Guard. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, I think it's First Chronicles 26. There's a lengthy sec- section about the priests who are uh, responsible for guarding the different posts in the temple and their duty, their duty posts and so forth. I won't get into that. But if you look at John chapter 7, at sort of towards the beginning of part of Jesus' ministry at that point in time, verse 32, and then at the end, the Sanhedrin sends these Jewish temple guards out and says, go arrest that guy. And they get arrested. They don't do the arresting. They hear the words of Jesus and they're just stopped dead in their tracks. And finally they come in without him and and their bosses say, well, where is he? And they say, oh, we didn't arrest him. And they say, why not? And they say, nobody ever taught like this guy. And then you find the Jewish temple guard again in Acts chapter 4. They're the ones that arrest uh, Peter and John and the man who's been healed. And then in chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, when uh, you find that they arrest all the apostles and then have to go back out and rearrest them because the angel liberates them during the night. I think they may appear one more time. This is just speculation on my part. When Paul goes off to Damascus, what's he going to do? Bring all the Christians back to the Sanhedrin for trial, single-handed, sort of Sergeant York style? No, I think he probably had a contingent of the Jewish temple guard. That particular thing is my conjecture. But think about it. How would he have gotten his prisoners back to Jerusalem? All right. So it was the Jewish temple guard that arrested Jesus. And Matthew gives us the specifics. When you read, read carefully. Don't read what you've been told is there. Try to take off those glasses of presupposition, those dark sunglasses, whatever color they are, whatever denominational tint they have, and try to see what's there. Now, am I saying all denominations are wrong or the teachings wrong? No, but you do pick up strange things along the way. Everybody has just a slightly different thing. Sometimes it's on, on the basics like this. When Matthew, in Matthew twenty six forty seven describes the Uh, describes the group that came out to arrest Jesus. He calls it a large crowd. Probably it's the temple guard and the uh, some, some deputies, we'll call them, people who were drummed into service at the last minute. And the reason I say that is because think about, if you read carefully, what they are carrying for weapons. They're carrying swords and clubs. A lot of them, all they've got is big sticks. This does not sound like a Roman military detachment to me. They would have been carrying swords and spears. And then 
Matthew tells you specifically they came from the chief priests and elders. They didn't come from Pilate. In fact, when Jesus gets taken to Pilate the next day, again, if you're reading what's there, he's confused. It's like, uh, what's going on? Why have you brought this man to me? Well, he's done thus and such and so and so. So he has to interview Jesus and say, why are you here? Um, He wasn't a part of the arrest, and no Roman soldier would have gone out to do this sort of thing had Pilate not been a part of it. Now, at the tomb, just just as Jesus is being buried, recall what goes on during the trial out in, in front of everybody. Pilate just finally says, I've had it. This is not justice, but he's trying to avoid a riot. And so he has a slave come over and pour water on his hands. And before the entire crowd, he washes his hands and he says, I wash my hands of the blood of this innocent man. And of course, the response is, his blood be on us and on on our, our children, right? So when the Sanhedrin, when the Jewish leaders come to Pilate and they say, you know, this guy told us that he kept saying that you know, he was going to rise from the dead. And man, if somebody comes and gets his body, it's going to be terrible for us. So we want you to post a detachment there. Now just read what Pilate says. Nothing else. Just read what he says. You, and this it's not so clear in the, in the Greek, uh, in the English, but in, in the Greek, it's clear. It's plural. Uh, I think it's clear in Spanish too. You, plural, have a guard. You, plural, go make it, that is the tomb, as secure as you can. Again, plural. So they went, who? The priests, the overseers, the people who were in charge of the temple guard. And having sealed the tomb, they set the guard. What guard? They set the guard from the temple. They, in this particular case, got a special authorization to operate outside of the temple. So they get this special pass to do this. Did you ever see this? Did you ever think about it? Now, one of the arguments for this being a group of Romans is that Luke, I think, uses a a word that's normally used with a a Roman uh, centurion or leader of of a group of men, a kiliarch. It's not a Roman word. It's not a Latin word. It's actually Greek. But remember, Matthew was there. Matthew's Jewish. Matthew knows about the customs. Luke, by uh, by contrast, is a Gentile, so he's going to think in terms of any military group uh, or police action in terms of the language that he knows and the culture that he knows. So just because he uses Kiliart doesn't mean that these were Romans. Matthew makes the whole matter quite clear. Don't know if we'll have time to finish this because we're coming up on the end of our hour. So um, we will come back to this matter of historical context in in this passage that we think we know so well. And even our flannel graphs, remember, used to have Roman soldiers coming to the garden and Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. We'll see as we look at Roman military jurisprudence tomorrow, as it's shown to us in the book of Acts, that... If there's any doubt in your mind that there were Romans at the tomb, we will blow that up just by reading in the book of Acts and understanding how the Roman military worked. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we've 
we've just been diving into some stuff that's brand new for people, this matter of uh, husbands love your wives and wives submit all being a part of a greater context of being filled with the Spirit. Lord, we have we've looked at these other passages. We've looked at the gates of Hades. And now we find out it's not a warfare verse. It's something far more wonderful. It is Jesus promised to us that we get to die in Christ and to go to be with him and not have to await. So, Lord, we thank you for opening this up. And I ask that you would take the the bit of history that we're going to look at tomorrow with regards to this passage and these passages that we've looked at in the book of Acts before but never really studied or thought about and how they reflect back. Lord, use this to open people up. Make us hungry to read your word. Make us hungry to understand your word and make us hungry to share your word. Amen. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, a ministry of National Prayer Chapel. You'll be able to find the show notes for today, probably before midnight tonight, at nationalprayerchapel.org. This should be the, uh, the uh, what is the name of the, the series? I should know. What's the context? It will be part three. Part two and part one are already up. I'm Jim Kerwin, filling in for the recharging Ray and Alexandra Greenlee. And I look forward to talking with you tomorrow and diving into the scriptures. Many blessings to you, and may you have the Holy Spirit open the scriptures to you as you make your commitment to reading cover to cover every year. Amen. See you tomorrow. Oh, His glory.